0: On this episode of the Dr. Matters Podcast, we are going to take a journey into what is labeled as progressive Christianity. Over the next few episodes, we're going to examine progressive Christianity and see if progressive Christians are truly Christian at all, or if this God that they talk about, this Jesus that they talk about, is some sort of made-up God that they have fashioned from their own belief system. Stay tuned, the Doctrine Matters podcast starts right now. Welcome to the Doctrine Matters podcast, a tool to help believers rediscover true biblical doctrine and to help them understand and live out their faith in their homes, in their churches, and in their communities. Thank you for listening to this episode. Let's get right to it. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. As mentioned in the intro, we are going to begin a series of listening to some sermons from a progressive church. Now, you may be wondering what sparked this interest, and it's because I see people and hear people that have such faulty views of God and such faulty views of the Bible that I, I wonder where this comes from. So if you listen to the last episode, Stop Listening to Christian Music, in that episode, we listened to a video from Derek Webb, who wore a dress to this GMA Dove Awards, which is a Christian music industry awards show, much like the CMAs or the MTV Music Awards were, if you're old enough to remember the MTV Music Awards. I don't know if they still do those or not, but either way, it's an award show, much like that. It it just celebrates Christian music and those that create Christian music. And Derek Webb wore a dress because he is friends with a drag queen artist who had a number one album on the Christian charts. Flamy Grant's her name. If you don't don't didn't listen to that episode, but um, and then another lesbian who was a part of Derek Webb's camp uh, of friends, uh, so to speak. He said that he heard from a a pastor named Stan Mitchell, and the reason he wore a dress is because if his allies are getting hit with stones from our culture, but you are not getting hit by the stones, you're not close enough, so he decided to wear a dress to fit in with them and fit in with the culture and fit in with this reprobate mindset of the LGBTQ, and It was Stan Mitchell he mentioned. So it started the path for me down. Who is this Stan Mitchell guy? So Stan Mitchell, oddly enough, is from about 15 minutes up the road from where I live in Northeast Arkansas. He planted a church in Nashville, Tennessee called Grace Point Church. And this church, just like Stan Mitchell, is a progressive church. It it is a place for progressive Christians to gather and be safe. Or in a safe space, you might say, uh, it is an affirming church. When it, when I say affirming, I mean affirming the LGBTQ. So, Stan Mitchell is no longer the pastor here at Grace Point Church. Grace Point Church is now pastored by another guy. I believe his name is Josh Scott. But I I, I will do a quick search just to make sure that I am being accurate in that because I want to represent this man the right way although he represents Christ and and the God of the Bible the wrong way. Yes, his name is Josh Scott. So he is now the lead pastor there. Don't know how long he's been there, but what I want to do over the next few episodes is as I looked through this Stan Mitchell and went down this rabbit hole of who he is, I uh came ac- of course came across this church and I um I-, I wanted to see what they were all about, right? And I noticed first and foremost, they were a progressive church and I started looking at the sermons because I wanted to just listen to a progressive Christian sermon. I've, i I kind of have known some of the beliefs of a progressive Christian. I mean, you probably know some of the beliefs, but not all. Some of the things in here shocked me because I'm not familiar with everything that they believe. Um, so I wanted to do, uh, listen to this and then just kind of Talk about it because we do live in this post modern, post truth world. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. There's no more absolute truth kind of deal. And that's essentially what I found here. So, what we want to do over the next few episodes is we want to take a crash course in progressive Christianity. And you're going to see why pulpits and churches have failed in America and across the world. And then you have things like what happened in Ohio as far as abortion over the last couple of days. You can go Google that, look at that if you want to. Uh, on, we may talk about that on another episode, but for the next few episodes, I want to follow this journey with this church because it 's interestingly enough when i interesting enough that when I started looking and, and looked at their sermons back at the beginning of October, they started a sermon series entitled "A Crash Course in Progressive Christianity." So I just want to look at these- bi- these sermons from a biblical standpoint, and i don 't want to be Critical, hypercritical of these things. And I don't want to give you my thoughts and commentary simply from my thoughts or maybe my frustrations or maybe my arguments, but I want to look at everything from a biblical perspective. So we're going to look at episode, this episode is going to look at um, sermon number one from this new series, A Crash Course in Progressive Christianity. And we're going to line this up with the Word of God. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and get started here. I'll pull this up for those of you that are watching online or on YouTube, Facebook, wherever, or Rumble, wherever you may be watching. And if you're just listening, you'll be able to hear this audio as well. But we're going to get into this together. We're going to take a crash course in progressive Christianity.
1: Also, we are starting a new series, and this series is a crash course in progressive Christianity. Um, And the reason we're doing this series, and I want to be really clear, this is not um, how every progressive Christian would talk about things. I'm going to share from my lens and my perspective what progressive Christianity means. Um, This is also not going to be an exhaustive series. I'm not going to say everything I think. Um, We don't have time. Advent is coming. We're going to start celebrating Christmas. I have to cut this off at some point. So we're going to just explore what I think right now are some of the most central, important things to talk about. And the way these sermons are going to function in this series, it's going to be a little bit different. So I'm going to try to talk less, say less, like maybe keep it to 25 minutes or so. So if you see me going over, you can go Baptist on me and start tapping your watch. Um, and then I want to open it up for conversation because I'm going to introduce some things that may be brand new ideas for some of you. Um, at nine o'clock, we had a great conversation at the end of the teaching. And so we'll do that each week during the series where I'll just sort of say, here's what I've got. What do y'all think? And then you can share, you can ask questions. Um, you can you can give constructive compliments, like whatever you want to do. That's uh, uh, what we'll do. Um, so Another why for this series is I think many of us now know what we no longer believe. We know that, that some of the stuff we were handed doesn't work for us. We, we know maybe the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible are no longer things we hold on to. We maybe know that penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, how many of you know what that means? How many of you don't know what that means? Th- look around. These are the hands of people who are blessed and highly favored.
0: <clears throat> All right, let me just stop right here because I think this is very important. This is one thing that has got to stand out to you when we start thinking about progressive christianity and what this is is they outright reject the inerrancy of scripture and the infallibility of the bible that simply means that they now believe that the scripture contains errors the inerrancy of scripture means that it does not contain errors so they have thrown this doctrine out they don't believe this anymore so they believe that it can pertain errors and the infallibility of scripture the inerrancy of scripture that means that they just believe that it can have errors and it does have errors. And we as professing believers, true Christians would say that the Bible is inerrant because it is the true word of God and the word of God teaches us that as a matter of fact it's it's an elementary principle that we find in the book of John and even the Hebrews writer the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1:1 1, 1, that uh, we no longer need uh, dreams and and prophecies because we have the word and John 1, 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This, of course, pointing to Jesus Christ. But we know from this one elementary and I don't want to say elementary because it's a very important scripture, but it's just a foundational doctrine that the Bible is the true word of God. And if the Bible does indeed contain errors, then the God of the Bible is not truly God at all. It means that he can error, he can sin, that he is not correct 100% of the time, which we reject that and believe that as the totality of Scripture being the true word of God, that it does not contain error. And let me just say this. There are places in Scripture that may seem to contradict itself. It may seem like there might be an error written there. And you may say the argument is written by men. And I would simply uh, tell you that, it was written by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit calling these men to write this, these true words of God. So when you say, well, it contains mistakes, it contains errors, then the, the onus is not on God. It's not on the word. It's on us because we are infallible. I mean, we are fallible. We are errant. We can have errors, right? We can see things differently because we are fallen individuals. Now, they don't believe in the fall of man. They don't believe in original sin. We're going to get into that, and that is a big problem. However, if you think that there is a an error in the Bible, it's with you and not with the word of God or God himself. So then he moves into I'm not going to bore you with penal substitutionary atonement. This is exciting that Christ died in our place a substitute. He took on what uh, he took on what we should have received and that's the full wrath of God. But he died in our place and he says I don't want to bore you with all this. I could talk about this forever. This should bring us joy, but I'm going to move on here for the sake of time. But it's just right out of the gate, we see that we have two major doctrines that they are rejecting. And that's penal substitutionary atonement and the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures.
1: Because they... They don't know what penal substitution, essentially penal substitutionary atonement. we'll talk about a little bit next week, I guess. It has to do with the death of Jesus and how the death of Jesus functions. And I don't want to bore you with that. Like I'll bore you with that next week. We also know that maybe like, we don't believe in the rapture, which was apparently supposed to happen a couple weeks ago. Um, it didn't, shockingly. And then we don't believe in hell, right? Like there are, we know there are things we no longer hold on to, but then what do we have left? And is it possible to have some sort of meaningful faith? Like when you reject all this stuff, like what, what do you actually embrace? And that's what I want to offer in this series, that there are some things, we can embrace. And I want to begin today with what I think is the central difference between uh, progressive Christianity and conservative Christianity, I, I would say between uh, toxic and non-toxic Christianity. Um, there, are, there are some big differences, but this is the central difference. And the central difference between progressive and conservative Christians is not that progressive Christians are affirming, although we are. It's not that we don't believe in hell, but that we don't. Like it's, That's not the big deal. The biggest difference is the starting point. And for progressive Christians, we begin with our faith from a different starting point than conservative Christianity. As conservative Christianity, we're going to talk about this today, begins with the idea that you and I are born separated from God. We enter this world because of original sin. We are sinners, and because we are sinners, God can't be around us. And so we are born separated from God. And the entire point of Christian faith is to be reconnected with God. Right? That we were born disconnected, and now we're going to be connected with God. Progressive.
0: So just to be clear, the whole entire Bible could be summed up in. A couple of words, the redemption of God's people, the redemption of God's people all throughout this. We see, and we're going to see from Genesis chapter three in the garden, we're going to we, we're going to see that this sin spread to all men. I'm going to back this up with scripture here in a few minutes, but I want to let him keep talking, but we can look at the Bible and say, this is a story, a, a true story about the redemption of the people of God. And yes, we have to be reconciled with God. If we are not believers, if we have not repented of sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are at war with God. So yes, we have to be reconciled to him. But he's going to get more into this, and we're going to see that this is coming from a worldly perspective, not only a worldly perspective, just from our his own flesh, his own thought process. So it's, it's going to be thinking, thoughts, but not thoughts that come from the Bible.
1: Christianity does not begin there. Progressive Christianity begins with the idea that every single human being is born inherently united with God, which is a way of saying we enter this world in union and connection to God and nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's where we begin. It is a major, major difference. And I want to explore a little bit about why. Because from the perspective of original sin of traditional Christianity, we enter this world, and we, through no fault of our own, really, because when, I mean, when you're born, what have you done wrong, right? You didn't ask to be born. You just entered the world. You're screaming your head off and people are waiting on you hand and foot. And oh, by the way, you're a sinner. Um, why is that the case? Well, in this lens, it's because the first human beings, Adam and Eve, were hanging out naked in a garden. And one day they ate some fruit they shouldn't have eaten. And because they did that, they, uh, this thing called sin entered the world. And through Adam and Eve, that sin, almost like it's part of our genetic makeup, our DNA code, that sin gets passed on to every single human being who would ever live. And because of that, because we are born with that issue, with that sin issue, then we need somehow to be saved, reconciled. There, there has Something has to happen to put us on right terms with God. Adam and Eve were the first domino, and then all the other dominoes went with them. Right? That's sort of the standard interpretation. And so if we were to give it sort of some language, we would say,
0: So let me just stop here again. And I want to make sure that we are looking at the Bible and what the Bible says. So, first of all, when he said, nothing can separate us from the love of God, that we're born into this world and we're not separated from the love of God, we're not separated from God. The problem is, sin has separated us from God spiritually. Can we say, yes, we are made in the image of God? Yes. That image is distorted in the garden, but we'll see. They don't believe the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. This is all some made up story uh, just to reflect how they felt in this time. These people that are writing uh, it's just it makes no sense as we get into this. But we're going to see that when he says this, he's, he's really quoting Romans chapter eight, verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That, that nobody or nothing can separate us from God. The problem is in this book, this is Paul writing to believers. Paul is writing to those who have been saved. Elsewhere, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Those who have been saved, God making his appeal through us, we implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be if you know the, the the scripture, you know what this word's fixing to be be reconciled to God, and he just denied it outright that we do not have to be saved or reconciled to God in any way. Therefore, they don't believe the Bible to be true. They don't believe the Bible to be sufficient. They don't believe anything that the Bible really has to say. And I've done a sneak peek at next week's sermon. And basically what I've gathered so far is progressive Christians want to take the feel good, love thy neighbor things in the scriptures, but leave everything else because they don't believe in original sin. And let me tell you here, he's fixing to get into original sin. He does, does not believe that because Adam sinned that all men and women, boys and girls now sin as well. But let me just read to you another passage from Romans, Romans chapter 5, starting verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that one man is Adam and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So right here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we see that the sin of Adam in the garden is what led to all of humanity being sinful creatures. We have inherited a sin nature from our father, Adam. And then Romans 5, Paul goes on to talk about this new Adam being Christ. If we were to slip down to Romans chapter five, verse 18, it says, so then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, not just those who believe in the Bible. It even means those progressive Christians that don't believe in the Bible because Adam's trespass, one trespass, there is now condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, act, there is justification leading to life for everyone for just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous so because of Christ we are now we now can be reconciled to God to be reconciled to God we must repent of our sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then the condemnation that does not happen Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation, guess what, for those in Christ Jesus. How do you become one of those in Christ Jesus? Well, you do what Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 repent and believe the gospel. You repent of your sin, turn from your sin, believe on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Then you will have no condemnation. And then we can go further down into Romans chapter 8, and we can say with boldness that nothing can separate us from the love of God for those of us that are in Christ. So those are some things I want you to keep in mind as we continue to listen to what he's having to say.
1: That for many Christians, if not most in the world, their primary understanding of the meaning of Christianity is that it is about overcoming sin and separation from God. Does that sound familiar? That's sort of how we were taught it. I don't see it that way anymore. And partly that's the case because almost 14 years ago, I became a parent. And what has been the case for me my entire life, I think, is that my head has been playing catch up with my heart Um, because my heart went places that my head wasn't allowed to go. Does that make sense? So, when people ask, When did your faith shift and all that? For me, it wasn't just, you know, it was partly engaged around reading the Bible, but that was trying to help my head catch up to my heart. My heart knew intuitively that some of the stuff I'd been preaching and teaching just wasn't very good. And I wanted to go and I wanted to find something better, and it's scary. But then for me, this was a heart issue. Leaving original sin behind, leaving this idea of separation from God started in my heart. And it started, I mean, I was already making a journey toward progressive Christianity uh, when our oldest was born. But something about holding, and he was six pounds, and he couldn't talk back yet.
0: I want to highlight this comment He couldn't talk back yet. Who teaches children to talk back? The answer is nobody. Somehow they just do it. I wonder why they just talk back. Is talking back to your parents a sin? Yes, it's disrespectful. It's dishonoring. And the Bible says to honor your father and mother. So talking back and not being obedient is a sin that just happens. Why? Because this child has inherited a sin nature from his father, Adam. Not this father, not Josh but the Adam of the Bible in Genesis chapter three. And this is going to come into play here in just a few minutes. Think about this quote. He couldn't talk back yet, yet. And he couldn't talk back because he couldn't talk.
1: And I remember looking at him and thinking, I'm supposed to believe that he's separated from God. I'm supposed to believe that he is somehow born a sinner, And that just didn't compute for me. I'm looking down at this little face who has just begun drawing breath, and thinking, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with him. I don't think he needs to be fixed. I don't think God needs to kill something or to cover him in, him in blood to love him and make him okay. I think he's okay. And for me, that began that unraveling of, well, he's my kid, so of course he's okay, but what about everybody else's kids? Are they okay? And what about every other human being? Are we really born separated from God? Are we really born disconnected? And so, After that moment of becoming a parent, my head was playing catch up with my heart. And what I discovered is for lots and lots of people, um, being able to talk about something through the lens of the Bible is really important. One of the questions we had at nine o'clock was, how do I begin to talk about this with people who disagree with me? And I encourage this person, one, to buy catcher's gear for baseball because it's safer that way. And then number two, it can really be helpful for people who are still within a more conservative Christianity. It can be really helpful to ground it in an interpretation of the Bible. I'll just be honest with you. I don't need the Bible to tell me that something is good for it to be good. Right, I don't need the Bible to tell me it's okay to be affirming. I'm affirming. I don't need the Bible to tell me that people aren't born broken and and, and sinful. I I just intuitively know that. But for some people, and there was a point for me, where having it wrapped in the Bible, sort of like taking medicine, you know, for a kid, like you put it in mashed potatoes and then they eat it. Like it's it's helpful that way. And Scripture does matter and it's significant. And so I needed this explained to me in this way. And so I'm going to walk through some Scripture today to try to make this make sense. But I think the really important thing to note is original sin. do, Do you know when the doctrine of original sin came into existence? You would think it would be like Noah on the boat, right? No, Carol, you're exactly right. It was through a guy named Augustine, St. Augustine. Some people call him Augustine. You have to put the Eastern Kentucky on it when you say it. Augustine. Um, Augustine, he lived from 354 to 430. So you're talking 400 years after the beginning of the Jesus movement is the first time somebody said, I think there's this thing called original sin. And when you read Augustine's story, what you begin to realize is in his days before he converted to Christianity, um, after his conversion, he had a lot of shame over some stuff he had done before he became Christian. And what he did is he creates a doctrine to try to make sense of it and then passes that shame that he experienced down onto all the rest of us. Aren't we so grateful for Augustine and his contribution to Christian history? Um, And he actually ended up teaching that the way original sin gets passed is through sexual intercourse. And so you can also see how purity culture began in the four hundreds, because not only does he say every human is broken and busted and needing needs saving, but also that the act of sex is dirty and unclean and it's a problem, right? So Augustine could have benefited from some therapy.
0: So let me say this. Augustine didn't believe that sex was nasty, dirty and a problem. Augustine believed that this sin nature was passed through procreation, but he also believed that sex was good in the confines of marriage. Now, where they're going to disagree is they're going to try to paint Augustine in a bad light because they want to be affirming and, and 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 probably say, yes, you can get to sleep with whoever you want to. Sex is not disgusting, and it's not disgusting when it's done God's way. So we see that even him here, he's distorting Augustine. He needs to study Augustine out a little further to know that Augustine never believed that sex in and of itself was disgusting. He, he just believed that what the Bible says in Romans chapter five, that sin was passed down to everyone because of one man's sin. And you, it, it's passed down from having sex and having a new child brought into this world, this fallen world. So there are so many distortions going on already that it's just, it, it's bad.
1: Unless um, theologizing on these important issues. Um, but this is what we, we have. And so, um, by the way, I was Googling around. Just some, just the internet is fun sometimes. And I was like, original sin, what are people saying? And I found this a link to this article, and I did not read the article, and you'll know why from the title. But here was the, here was the thing. Adam and Eve committed at least 24 sins in Genesis 3. <laughs> 24? I mean, you think if they're going to do it for the first time, they should go for broke and like, do 50 or something, but it's 24. Um, so I want to explore that story because that story is the story that essentially is where we get this doctrine, right? An interpretation of Genesis 3. And so let's just talk about it. Um, The Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1, not chapter 3, chapter 1. And in chapter 1, it's sort of the closest thing you get to a poem. Um, And it's a poem of creation where the earth is created in six days. Um, And people have argued and fought about how literal that poem is. Um, Not going to do that right now. Um, But the reality is it's one creation story. In this creation story, God creates by speaking. Let there be light, and there is light. Let there be an expanse the sky. And at the end of every day, God announces it's good. It's good. It's good until God creates people. And it's very good. And it seems like God just creates people. Like God's like, let's create some people and boom, there are people. Genesis two is really different. It's a different source. It's from a different author. And this tells a much more intimate story. God is also anthropomorphized in the story, which means God has given a lot of human characteristics, which we'll see in the story. In, in sort of chapter one, God is just sort of this being that can say stuff and it happens. In Genesis three, God is really different. Genesis three is actually an older Story. What we see in Genesis one is shows evolution and how the Israelites understood God, because um, God isn't anthropomorphized in this story. Anyway, that's uh, that's bonus content. So in this story, the God creates a garden called Eden, and God forms from the dirt the first human, and God sculpts the human out of dirt and then breathes into this human being the breath of life. It's the first uh, act of.
0: He's getting into the creation account here, which they don't believe. But let me just clarify: Moses wrote Genesis. There's not a different writer for chapter two than there was for chapter one. Moses wrote the book of Genesis and it's credited with other books. So this is is more just seemingly nonsense coming from this man. And I haven't heard him use scripture yet. He said he was going to, but I don't know.
1: CPR in human history. Um, God breathes into this being and the being becomes alive. Eventually there's another being, Adam and Eve. They're these two people and their job is to join God in caring for all Creation. And God tells them in this garden, there are all kinds of trees. You can eat from any of them. There's the tree of life, there's, you know, a fig tree, like whatever. You can have all this. There's just this one tree. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, bad news, you're going to die. So, um, naturally, by the way, can we just talk about God's parenting style? It would be like me going into our living room with uh, a pair of scissors and laying on the coffee table and saying, Kids, I want to draw your attention to the scissors. (laughs) Don't touch the scissors. Do not pick up the scissors and run, and do not chase your brother with the scissors you're running around the room with, right? You don't draw that kind of attention, because the moment you say, don't do that, it's like when I set a drink down on the table. Kids, I have a drink on the table. They were nowhere near, but you know where they all at? They're all right here. It's like this thing in kids, like, I can't do that. I want to get as close to doing it as possible. Um, And
0: so God so he had another analogy that broke down immediately. So he says that uh, God's parenting style, first of all, he's challenging and talking about God in such a flippant way that is not bringing reverence and all to his name and challenging his parenting style. So if you heard him correctly, he said, "If I lay a, it's like God is doing this, like, a, like if he were to lay down scissors and say, hey, kids, here's scissors, don't touch it it's bringing attention to the scissors and naturally kids instincts are going to want to touch the scissors and do whatever the parent says not to do. Well, he then turns around and says, it's like when I have a drink and I'm sitting down and it's on the table and all of a sudden I have a drink and the kids were nowhere to be found. And now they're right all around the table. Did he tell the kids that he had a drink? Most times kids, you can set scissors on the table, a drink on the table, and you can say, Hey, don't knock this off. Don't, pick up these scissors and run with this. Don't stab anybody. Leave these things alone. They're going to look at it and want to do those things. You could not say anything and kids will still find it and still do things that they shouldn't do, like pick up the scissors and run, which is why you have to give them direction. If we didn't give our kids direction, we'd have kids running all over the place with scissors still and also running around with suckers in their mouth. And we tell them not to run with suckers in their mouth either, right? You have to give kids direction. So God was giving them direction. This is the law. Do or as they would know it, the law, right? The the law comes later, but God was giving direction. Hey, everything in this garden, good. Just don't touch this one. You've got all this, just not this. Okay. So if they didn't have that direction, they were going to go, they would eventually wind up at that tree anyway. So God was giving direction. It's it's got nothing to do with parenting style. It's got nothing to do with God being a bad God or a bad dad or anything like that. It's simply directives that we all need, and we all give our kids directives as well. Whether they are going to find the scissors or not, they have to have that direction. Adam and Eve had that direction. Everything's yours except that. That one's mine. Don't touch.
1: God does this right. Like there's this tree. There are these trees you can eat of all these. You can't eat of this one, and then. If you've never heard this story before, you're going to think this is wild. Then a talking snake enters the story. Yes, talking snake enters the story. Apparently the snake is not crawling because that happens at the end of the story. Um, and so like the, the snake just with legs just walks in and is like, hey, how are you? Totally normal. I'm a talking snake. That's what happens. The snake says to the uh, first humans, like, look, I, don't think, I think God's afraid that if you eat this, you're actually going to become like God and then God is not going to have the monopoly. So, you know, try it out. And they eat the fruit and something happens. At the end of Genesis 2, we are told these first humans were naked and unashamed. Now, I think this idea of being naked and unashamed is deeper than just not wearing clothes, right? I think it's something more significant. It's a vulnerability. It's a uh, walking into a space and not feeling like you don't belong there. It's not feeling like you have to hide anything. It's not wearing a facade. It's not putting on a mask. It's not pretending. There's a vulnerability between these two people, and they don't even recognize it. They just, it's the most natural thing in the world for them. A, a vulnerability, a trust. And then they eat this fruit, knowledge of good and evil. Then the eyes of both were open, Genesis 3-7. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? A couple of things. God shows up for a walk, like you do when you're God. I right? see God is more like God has human quality. Like the idea that God could walk is a human quality. Then God shows up in the garden, starts looking around, and God's like, I thought I made people. Where are the people? And God says, where are you? It's it's like God is really bad at hide and seek. Can't can't find or maybe God's playing a game with them. Like when my kids, you know, they're small and they play hide and seek, and you can see their feet sticking out, or they just put like a bag on their head or something, and you're like, I can see the rest of you. Maybe that's what we're supposed to think. But
0: here's another problem in their thinking is that they don't believe that God apparently is an all-knowing God, an all-powerful God. God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. He knew exactly what they did and covered themselves. He knew exactly what they were doing. But to bring God down as some sort of really bad at hide and seek or um, uh, just playing a game with Adam and Eve, this is not game. This is not a game. This is sin, and this has got severe repercussions for the entire human race. And this guy's up here just laughing it off as if God is bad at hide and seek, as if God doesn't know exactly what he's doing.
1: Either way, God starts looking for them and says, where are you? And the man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? And did you, by chance, eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? Now, this idea of the knowledge of good and evil, think about it like this.
0: So here's another thing, and I'm sorry to stop it so soon, but God also knew that they ate from the tree of the garden in the garden of of knowledge of good and evil. He knew that because he is all-knowing. He knew what was going to happen. He decreed these things before the foundation of the world. And let me just say this, that if God didn't know that they ate of the tree, then God would be learning something. Therefore, a God that has to learn is not a God at all. That's open theism, and that's heresy. So I don't know if they believe in open theism. I'm not sure exactly. I've only listened to this sermon and then part of the other one that we're going to look at on the next episode. But um,
1: God doesn't learn anything. God knew exactly what they did. When you think you possess the knowledge of good and evil, then you get to decide who is good and who is bad. And eventually you get to decide what happens to the good people and the bad people. The good people get rewards, the bad people get punished, right? That's the knowledge of good and evil. It's deciding who's right, who's wrong, who lives, who dies. That's the knowledge of good and evil. And these first humans take the fruit, they eat it, their eyes are opened, and suddenly the vulnerability that they were able to exist with, the trust, the the lack of self-consciousness. Because hasn't everybody had that dream where you show up to school naked? And it's not a good dream. But for Adam and Eve in the beginning, that was life. And they were totally unashamed. And then suddenly, that vulnerability drops away. Why? Because they're afraid of being judged by the other. Why is it that sometimes when we walk into a space and we don't know anybody, and for extroverts, you're not going to know what this is. Um, I I waffle between extrovert and introvert. You ever walk into a room and just think, they're going to think I'm the dumbest person they've ever met. Anybody else ever do that? Like you're totally nervous to walk in Yes, do that all the time. There's none of that before. And now there's this fear of, are they going to like me? Are they going to judge me? Are they going to think I'm bad? And then right after this, They fess up. We ate from the tree. And then all of a sudden the blame game starts and Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the talking snake. And the snake is just left holding the bag, right? The snake loses his legs and the ability to talk. Apparently, thankfully, could you imagine if like snakes could talk to you?
0: Adam should have taken ownership of his own sin because he was put in the garden as Eve's head. Federal headship is a, is, is a thing. And we'll talk about that at some point, but he was her leader. He was to be her spiritual leader. He was to be over her, Protect her, help her, nourish her, and yet he doesn't stop her from eating of the fruit of the tree, so Adam should have taken full ownership of his sin and not blamed Eve, and then Eve in turn blaming the serpent, and the serpent's not left holding the bag again, God knows exactly what's happening god's uh, will is going going to play out, and again we're going to see across the Bible the redemption of the people of God. So this blame game should have never happened. Adam should have owned his sin because it was him that allowed the, uh, his wife to eat of the, the fruit. Therefore, just giving sin, passing it down to all humankind.
1: Today, it would just be the weirdest thing. And, and so there's this sort of unraveling that begins to happen. Now, a few observations. Number one, are these people separated from God because of what happens in the garden? No, no. Eventually, they're expelled from the garden, so they don't eat the tree of life and get stuck in their shame. But is that what happens? No, God doesn't sh- shy away from them. God shows up. God walks with them. God stitches them some clothes. God takes care of them. They they have shame, and God helps them process their shame. They're- the
0: the image of God is distorted in that moment. It is broken. It's shattered in human beings, and they are expelled from the garden. And God says, because of this, the ground is cursed. You're going to have to endure a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of heartache because of your sin. Your work, it's going to feel like toil. You're going to toil in your work and feel like you're doing nothing sometimes. Work is not cursed. Let me say that. The ground is. So we have pain and sorrow and sickness and death because of the sin. And yes, they were cast out of the garden, separated. And all of mankind is born essentially separated spiritually from God. now, God, in his goodness and kindness, allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the unbeliever and the believer, so we all experience the goodness of God, even unbelievers experience the goodness of God and the common graces of God but don't do you see how? This sin has shattered the image of God in human being's life. And once we become a Christian, that sanctification process is moving us to be more like Christ, which in the way I see it is like a broken mirror. We come to Christ and then the Holy Spirit is beginning to put that mirror back together until one day it's going to be perfected again when Christ returns. And we will be with him forever, perfected as it once was, in the garden, pre fall, so there's a lot of. If you'll notice, words like guilt and shame, he's pulling these type words into the narrative because that's what progressive Christians think when they think of biblical Christianity. They think of being shamed and being uh, guilted into things and 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 feeling made feel bad about their sin and like they're uh, not real people because they've struggled with sin or something like that. But they, they pull these words in because they don't like the fact that sin has to be held accountable. So you're going to continue to hear these things, and it's all a feelings-based, a thought process. It's all a brand-new religion. It is not Christianity at all. So we're starting to see that unfold. I think we understood that this is not true Christianity in the beginning when they deny the in- inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture and also penal substitutionary atonement. We'll get into that next week.
1: They're not separated from God, but they are hiding, Amen. which means they have a sense of shame and estrangement. They sense something is off about their relationship with God. I would argue that it's a one-sided deal. There's not something off between God and them. There's something off between them and God on their. They feel like something is off. You ever had that happen in a relationship where you're still connected, but something is, to use a technical uh, term, wonky? Um, between you, like you're, you, you, maybe you're right next to each other, but you feel miles apart internally, like that sort of vibe. Second, the word sin never shows up in Genesis chapter three, ever. God doesn't show up in the garden and go, "Y'all sin. Why'd you sin? Why did you sin twenty-four times? Like, why, why, why?" That's not at all within the story. The first mention of sin in the Bible comes in Genesis four, and it's in the context of
0: well, again, Romans five goes back to the fall. Paul is not referencing what he's about to reference, Cain and Abel. He's referencing the fall, the first Adam, the federal head. We needed a second Adam, a better Adam, a greater Adam to come in and make things right. So, even even though sin may not be mentioned in chapter three in accordance with what they have done, Paul is clearly mentioning it in Romans chapter five and referring back to Genesis chapter three,
1: Cain being so angry and jealous of his brother that he wants to kill his brother. And God says to Cain, uses the image of sin being like an animal ready to pounce. Sin is crouched, ready to pounce on you, but you must master it. You must resist it. And Cain's killing of Abel essentially is the first sin recorded in the Bible. You can say Genesis 3 created the context because what is the knowledge of good and evil? Deciding who lives Who dies, who's good, and who's bad. But that's never called sin. Sin is attached. If we have an original sin, it's not eating fruit all naked in a garden. Our original sin as human beings is violence. It's choosing to use violence on other people. And what you see fall out from the Cain story is suddenly you have a buildup of violence so great that in Genesis chapter six, that human that threat of human violence is so great it's threatening to flood all of creation. That's the Noah story. It's essentially human beings engaging in violence and escalatory violence and more violence until the whole thing is in danger. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore as a species that we learned from our past, and we don't build big nuclear bombs that would blow up the whole planet? We've learned.
0: Hey, I have an idea. Let's think about what would have happened to Cain and Abel had Adam not sinned in the garden and they not eat the the fruit from the tree. Would Abel have been murdered by Cain? No. Why? Because sin entered and that's the reason we see it called sin in Genesis chapter. Um, is it four or six? Uh, whatever it is, <laughs> I, I just had that thought. I mean, it's be because of the sin in the garden. It wasn't because of sin of Cain. He's just all of a sudden thinking, "Oh, I think I'm going to kill my brother because I have these awful thoughts again. I hate him because God accepted his offering and not mine, so I'm just going to kill him." He would have never had those thoughts had it not been for the fall in Genesis chapter three. Do you see the link here? The link is the sin in the garden has led to now sin everywhere else, including Cain and Abel. And I'm sure other things that weren't written about positive of that. So there's a reason that sin is mentioned here is because of the sin in the garden. Not so much.
1: And so if, if that's the case, and sin is not mentioned in Genesis 3, then what is up with this whole idea of original sin? Why do we have it? I think partly because people try to deal, are trying to deal with the problem of Genesis 3, which is shame and estrangement. People feel shame. And when we are acting out of shame, we do not make our best decisions, do we? When we are acting out of this sense of shame, and the sad thing is, instead of being offering an antidote to shame, which is, hey, actually you were born originally good and originally blessed. You didn't come into this world broken. You didn't come into this world needing saving. You didn't come into this world a problem for God or anybody else. You came into this world as a beautiful, beloved child of God and you belong. And because we have not been able to say that, billions of people who have found their way to the Christian faith, and even those who haven't, because we don't just keep our shame inside, do we? As a tradition, we have been willing to share that with everybody. And so we've created this context and what happened to Adam and Eve in this mythic story? And it's a mythic story. What happens to Adam and Eve in this story doesn't change their connection to God and it doesn't change ours. Progressive. Pre-
0: then God is a liar. If this is just a mythic story, never happened. There is no fall of mankind. Everybody's good. Everybody's going to end up with God in the end. This universalism, again, a heresy. And life is just good and we need to stop telling people they're bad that's essentially what this is
1: christianity begins with this idea that we are inherently united with god that we are connected to the divine and nothing can change that it is not a story of sin and separation it is a story of shame and estrangement it is a story of shame and the sense of separation do you know why you probably thought when you were younger that you were separated from god you know why because somebody told you you were you didn't come up with that on your own I promise you, my littles had no idea what separation from God would be like because it can't happen, and they've never been told that they are. We are taught that, and I think it's why it's so important for, important for us to unteach it. We are no more separated from God than the younger, the younger brother was separated from his father in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. You remember that story? The younger brother goes off, wastes everything, comes back home broke and full of shame, and what does the father do? Father says, you know what, son? We need to have a talk. You brought so much shame on our family. How dare you? We, we, we publicly disowned you. We, we want nothing. No, this father hitches up his toga. I don't know what you call that, tunic. <laughs> bears some legs and runs to that boy. Picks up the phone and calls the DJ. He keeps on retainer just for situations like this, as everyone ought to. And they throw a party to celebrate because he actually says, this son of mine, this son of mine, always been a son of mine. And he was gone and now he's back. I thought he was dead and he's alive. We have to celebrate. We are born United with God, and we're also in process. Those two things are not in tension with each other. How many of you all think differently now, behave differently now, you're more mature now, you've changed your opinion now in ways that you feel like have made you a better human being over time? Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and the- so just, I, I try not to interrupt here, but the story of the prodigal son shows us God's faithfulness, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us enough to to call us to himself. And we don't have to come and work and earn his favor and earn salvation. Matter of fact, the the son brought nothing. It was customary to bring back a gift. If you have done what he did, you're supposed to bring back a gift, but he comes back empty handed. He has nothing to bring. He has nothing to offer. And it was by God's grace that he was able to latch latch on to him and pick him up and be faithful, even in our faithlessness. And it just shows us that we we don't earn anything. We can't earn God's grace. We can't earn his favor. We can't earn salvation, but it it's freely given. And, and God w- runs to meet us and to grab us. And I could spend a lot of time talking about the prodigal son, but I, I just try to really quickly get those words out. But he is totally raking across the coals the actual meaning of The Bible in many places, as you've already seen
1: the religious language, we would say we've repented over time. We've changed our mind about things. I am so grateful that when I started preaching at 15, who let me preach at 15, by the way, you don't talk about people who have some bad judgment.
0: I'm saying this lovingly, but who's letting him preach now? Because this is bad.
1: Yeah, let's put that kid up there. Um, When I first started preaching in the mid 90s, um, they, they recorded everything on cassette tape. Thank God because hardly anybody has a cassette tape player anymore. And that means that those sermons are exactly where they should be lost to history because they're awful. Uh, Not only is the delivery bad, but the theology stinks. Uh, And I was struggling because even as a younger person, I, I had senses inside what I'm saying doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like good news, but it's true. So I have to say it. And then I learned it's actually not true. There are lots of ways of looking at things and there are better ways to be Christian. I've changed over time and I still will. If you listen to my sermons in 10 years, and if I'm still around and preaching, I hope that you're like, that guy changed. He changed. He, he thinks differently now. He learned something new, and he changed.
0: I hope he changes by repenting of his sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: His mind, as a result, we're all in process, and that's okay. So a couple of thoughts, and I want to open it up for conversation. One, um, bad theology always creates bad anthropology. and What I mean by that is when you have toxic opinions and beliefs about God, it transforms into toxic opinions and beliefs about human beings, Right. Um, and somebody at the nine o'clock pointed out that it actually also is the true opposite. Um, when you have bad uh, toxic opinions of humans, you can then cast that out into the universe and call that God. And it isn't it interesting that, uh, Anne says that, you know, you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people, people you do. Isn't it interesting that my God always agrees with me and always dislikes all the people that I dislike. And always, isn't that really, really interesting. It could be because we made that God up and now we've created a, um,
0: There's so much to say here. They are making up a God as well. They are making up a God. They're fashioning him into what they want him to be. They're making him a God of love, 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 love. And they're taking away wrath and his justice. So they're doing the same thing they're accusing others of. And and I can see what he's saying, too, is we let human beings... Dictate what we believe about God, and and we let what we've heard about God dictate what we believe about humans. And he says that God dislikes the same type the same type of people I dislike, and all those things. That's the problem when the Bible is not your standard. Because I can tell you that God hates sin, all types of sin, and it's all throughout the scriptures. And. They're going to say that because God hates that, that so are his followers, so are Christ followers. True Christian or biblical Christians are going to then hate the people that he talks about. And that's simply not true. Some Christians, some professing Christians have done that, but not all. When the, when the Bible is your standard, you, ha- you begin to have a better understanding of who God is, who people are, who we are. So you have to start with the word of God. The totality of scripture, not cherry pick verses and believe that some of its mythical language, not believe that some of it is made up and just simply not true, but believe that it is the true word of God.
1: I think I think maybe some people should have, you know, the sign when you walk to somebody's house and it says, beware of dog. I think some people have to like, put a sign that says beware of God because their image of God is so toxic that it then leads them and justifies their abuse and mistreatment of human beings. Right. Because if your God is a genocidal maniac, then you can, too. If your God is hateful and will roast billions of billions, almost everybody who's ever lived in a literal hell forever, then why can't you do whatever you want to them while they're here? There you go. <laughs> why can't you shame everybody who's ever lived too? If your God is hateful and will roast billions of billions, almost everybody who's ever lived in a literal hell forever, then why can't you do whatever you want to them while they're here? Why can't you?
0: We'll roast them in hell forever. <laughs> they don't believe in hell, even though the Bible talks about hell. Um. They, they, I guess they believe love wins, Rob Bell type stuff. I don't know, but, but they don't believe in the God of the Bible, folks. They've got this made up, exaggerated story of who he is. And then they've taken all of their thoughts and their emotions and the, all, all the things they've experienced in life and created a totally different God. And this is very sad. And these people are some of the folks that will burn in hell for eternity if they don't truly repent of their sin and believe on the real Jesus Christ that came. And died, was buried, and rose again.
1: You shame them, guilt them, harass them, oppress them. Why can't you try to strip their rights away from them?
0: And that's the problem. They think that because we are using the standard of God's word to say that same sex couples should not be married, homosexuality is a sin, transgenderism is a sin, transitioning is a sin, uh, drag queens are a sin. Anything like that is a sin. And because we call it sin, they think that we're being oppressive and rude. And again, granted, some people have, they've crossed the line. But when we lovingly hold to the standard of the Bible, the God of this Bible's word, then we get called bigots and hateful and that we are uh, suppressing them and oppressing them. And we are shaming and guilting people into trying to believe in this God of the Bible. The problem is they don't know God, therefore they're not going to hold their lifestyle accountable to the Word of God. But when someone else does, then that person is awful, and you believe in a false God, and you're going to hell, but you don't. they don't really believe that because they don't believe in hell. So I guess they—I wonder if— Josh would were, were to come across this video and and hear me say that I vehemently disagree with him. I think he's unbiblical. I think he's unregenerate, and I believe he's going to hell on judgment or when he dies. And on judgment day, he'll be separated the sheep from the goats. He's going to be a goat. He's going to be a tear. And I wonder if he hears me say that. If he would say still. Yeah, but you're still good and God loves you and you're going to be in heaven with me one day. I don't do they believe in heaven. I hope we get to, to the bottom of that. I hope we get that answer soon. So uh, I wonder if they're loving and 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 tolerant as they want us to be when it comes to our views versus theirs, because they sound like they have an axe to grind with biblical Christianity.
1: Because I mean God doesn't care. God's on your side. You're on God's side. And so I think it's important for us to just say if the beginning of our theology, is rooted in something toxic. No matter how we try to clean it up, it is going to be a toxic faith. A God who can't come near God's children because they did something wrong isn't a good God. Isn't a God worth believing in? To quote our friend Derek Webb, some gods deserve atheists.
0: Oh, to quote our friend Derek Webb, that's a, that's a good one to quote there, huh? Um, let's just take a quick gander at that. Many of you are going to know this scripture. Um, matter of fact, I'm kind of getting a little rowdy here. I, I want to because see what Because they said. did something
1: wrong isn't a good... theology is rooted in something toxic. No matter how we try to clean it up, it is going to be a toxic faith. A God who can't come near God's children because they did something wrong isn't a good God.
0: A God that can't come near to his children? There's a difference. His children are those who have repented of sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and are mortifying sin, casting off the flesh. They're... Imitating God, as Ephesians 5 1 says, he's referring to those reprobates, those who are not believers, but he's calling them children. He's conflating this idea that children are everyone, is everyone in in the universe, right? Anybody born is a child of God and is not separated. However, the Bible's clear sin separates us from God, and these quote unquote children he's talking about are the ones that are railing against the scriptures. They're railing against who he is. They're railing against God's character, his, who he is, his nature, all of these things. And the Bible says that there is no one who seeks God. This is uh, Paul again in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one, the Bible says in Romans chapter three, and these are the children he's talking about because they're in open rebellion against God, and they will continue that way until they repent and believe on the true Lord Jesus Christ, and then he's now using what is what the Bible says and making it seem as if though it were false. Again, these people do not believe in the scriptures, or at least the ones that aren't social, gospelly, and just, justicely. Uh, they don't, they, they'll take those and manipulate them to form their narrative.
1: Isn't a God worth believing in to quote our friend, Derek Webb. Some gods deserve atheists and the God of original sin deserves atheists because it's not a good god. Second, to say original sin isn't a thing is not to say that sin isn't a thing. That's what people always jump to, right? Like, well, there's no original sin. You're saying there's no such thing as sin. And look what all those people are doing. And no, no sin exists. Of course, sin exists. There are ways that we individually.
0: Can somebody help me out here? Would you leave a comment and tell me what this means that some gods deserve atheists? I I don't know. I, I, I'm really having a hard time with that one. Maybe I'm just not seeing it the way it seeing it clearly or thinking through it clearly you tell me what does this mean some gods deserve atheists help me out with that one
1: harm do harm to ourselves and other people and when we get together in groups there are ways we create systems that are harmful to ourselves and to other people right that's just true to say that sin doesn't exist to say there aren't ways you can use whatever word you want for it but to say there aren't ways we're doing real damage and harm to the world and ourselves and others that would just be not paying attention of course of course sin is a thing. What I'm saying is sin does not have the power to separate you from God. Mm. Nothing does. In Romans, Paul gets really worked up and he just announces, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God.
0: Two believers.
1: And that's actual good news. Would you agree? That is actual good news. And then two things. What's at stake? Um, I made a post on social media this week that said, uh, if Christianity wants to be Christ-like, we have to get rid of original sin. There were some people on the internet who did not agree. Um, and they disagreed strongly, um, and they were very mad at me. Now, why were they mad at me? Um, one thing they said, one thing they didn't say, but it was obvious. The one thing they said is, if you take original sin off the table, then Jesus did not have to die. Yeah, that's right. Jesus didn't have to die. Yeah. God didn't kill Jesus. The sins of human beings kind of killed Jesus because that's what empire does. Right, but Jesus did not die to pay God for our sins. This was not some sort of like weird hostage negotiation between God, Jesus, and the devil.
0: All right, here we go with cosmic treason, it sounds like. But let me just read to you. He keeps saying sin does not separate or nothing separates us from the love of God. Let me, this is why the totality of scripture matters. When we say the totality, we mean from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament. Some people would like for you to unhook or unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. We're simply not going to do that because the Old Testament is God's word. The New Testament is God's word. And God is never changing. He does not change. So let's read Isaiah 59, in, starting in verse 1. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But, verse 2, your iniquities, your sin, your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Listen. Sin separates from God, which is the need to be redeemed and to be reconciled to God, which again, totality of Scripture, the redemption of God's people is how it could be labeled. So let's let's not look at Scripture if we want to fashion a God out of our own likeness. Let's just believe what we want to believe and overlook the passages that say that your sin separates you from God. Or they're
1: trying to figure out you know, what's going to happen. That's not what happened at all. Jesus did not have to die to make you right with God. And we're going to talk about that a little more next week. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be Christian in the progressive Christian lens, but fundamentally Jesus did not have to die so that God could like you or feel good about you or see you differently. Can you imagine the kind of parent I would be if, if our kids, my kids messed up and I was like, all right, go get the goat. Now we have to kill something to make you okay. No, no, God doesn't operate that way. That's not how God, that's how humans operate sometimes. But I don't think that's how God operates primarily. So one is, what's at stake? Atonement theology. Like figuring out, explaining the death of Jesus, explaining why it happened and looking at the actual human causes of it, not the divine causes because there were none. And then second, the thing they didn't say, which was very apparent is that when you take original sin off the table and you tell people that they're not separated from God, they're born united with God, whether you go to church or don't go to church, whether you believe in this faith or any faith, you are united with God. You're a breathing human being, you're in. You lose control over people. Right. You lose control over people. It is, and listen, conservative Christianity has, does a much better job um, terribly of motivating people because they use shame and guilt like crazy. And they use fear like crazy. Right. It's this idea that, uh, for example, if you're trying to get people to do trunk or treat at a fall festival in the progressive world, you just got to hope they're feeling it in the conservative world. You can say, yeah, we need you to do trunk or treat. And if you don't, God will send you to hell. First of all, nobody says
0: that I've never said that. Uh, I I don't use guilt and shame to people. Um, when I have a gospel conversation, I lovingly talk to people. I lovingly share uh, what the Bible says and, and that, um, sin separates from God, although they don't believe that the Bible says it, I guess they don't believe the Bible, uh, which is probably why he doesn't have one on the table there. Uh, I bet you that we won't see one this whole series. If we do, I'll be shocked. Uh, but, um, I don't tell, I don't use sh- shame and guilt and scare tactics to scare people into heaven because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to preach the gospel. How can they hear without somebody teaching? Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God. We must teach the word of God, not guilt and shame people into people. That's guilt and shame has created many false conversions. We simply have to tell them. And if they get scared of judgment, that's on them. We have to use the language that the Bible uses, but we don't have to scare them into heaven because scaring them into heaven has led to many false conversions and many people on their way to hell. And many people who thought they were once saved because they were scared into heaven or scared into salvation are now preaching progressive churches.
1: And you may be thinking, isn't a trunk or treat already kind of like hell? Maybe. Ours won't be, but some of them can be. Um, and, and essentially the two motivators that I grew up with, and I bet some of you did too. One was fear. The other was certainty. We have certainty. Why would you doubt your faith? Why would you question your beliefs? We have certainty. We know that we know that we know that we know that we know. All those other people, they think they know. We know, right? Certainty, fear. One false move and God is going to get you. You ever feel like God was just sitting on a park bench with a newspaper with like two eye holes cut out, just like watching you to see if you messed up? Fear and certainty. What I've learned is there's two things that were the primary motivations given to me for my faith. Fear, I don't need. Never make your best decisions when you're afraid. Right. Certainty.
0: Fear is language that's all throughout the scriptures, and we need to be fearing God. And that is a long-lost doctrine, and it is long lost with these people. They have thrown out the Bible, and they're, they're rewriting the Bible.
1: We can't have because it doesn't exist. And those are the primary two motivators. And when you take those away, you lose control over people. If I can make you believe that you're fundamentally broken and that I have the solution to the problem, I can get you to do whatever I want you to do. I can take all your money. I can use you and abuse you and be toxic towards you. And you'll think you're stuck because I've got the answers. So I think that's I never said that part out loud because they don't believe that's actually going on. But I think it is. Original sin helped us for 2000 years almost control the masses. And now, and one of the things we have to say in the progressive world is like, if people don't think what you're doing matters, and if it doesn't mean something to them, they're not going to engage it. And that's actually okay. It's better than giving people all sorts of phobia and fear and toxicity through which they're now trying to make sense of their life. So we begin here. In other words,
0: I want to be gay, lesbian. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want you to call me out on it. I don't want you to hold me accountable on it. Once you do, yeah, you're just a, a bigot that doesn't like people and you're you believe that biblical Christianity stuff. This this is all translated into men love their sin more than they do God.
1: Not with sin and separation, but we begin with you you are a beloved child of God, born in the embrace of God, and nothing can ever take that away from you. Are you with me? Yes. All right. So let's do this. We're gonna take some questions, comments, um, um, if you make rude remarks, remember this is on the internet, so it'll live forever. Um, yeah, you, you can ask questions, you can offer perspective, whatever. We just I, I, These are big topics, and I want to make sure that I'm not a monologue. I want to hear where you're at and what you're thinking. So we're going to start. Adam, do we have anything online yet? Are we, are we good? Does anyone want to go first? We have one more right over here.
0: <clears throat> now we'll just listen to maybe a question, and then we'll... we'll Here's why I off. love
1: doing sermons this way, because on a normal Sunday, if it, the sermon is bad, it's all my fault. Now, if it's bad, we did it together. And so don't let it be bad. Okay. I don't know if this.
0: With all due respect, it was bad.
1: Maybe you have something to back up this question, or maybe it's just your opinion. I'm just curious. Why make the tree if like, I feel like that's just setting like humans up for failure. So why make the tree? Okay. um,
0: For his good pleasure, his will, um, he wanted to. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases.
1: So here's why. Because this is a story. This did not happen in human history. It is a story. And what do stories need? Stories need the option to go one way or the other. Like, for example, I use this a lot. I'll use it until I die because I think it's a good point. The movie National Lampoon's Vacation. <clears throat> Hang with me. If that movie was opening credits, they plan a trip to Wally World, they go to Wally World, everybody has a great time and they drive home. I'm not watching that movie. I need them to meet disaster. For it to be an interesting film. I need them to jump the car in the desert. You know what I'm talking about? I need them to do that. I need that to happen because stories need that. Now, I think there's something else going on with this story in particular, that this story is a part of the Torah, which is the first five books, which are a collection of writings, strands of which existed and then got brought together during a period of time called the exile. Now, the exile was a time when uh, Judah, um, Israel had already been defeated. Judah gets defeated by the Babylonians. They're taken to Babylon in exile, and then the longing is to go back home. Um, most scholars think the Torah got its final form during that period. So it's interesting that they would begin with a story of we were in paradise, everything was right, then we made some choices, um, which the prophets would say were allowing injustice to go unchecked, uh, not caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, um, that sort of thing. And because of that, then we had this sense of estrangement from home and we're left sitting by the rivers of Babylon weeping and hanging our hearts, right? Because so I don't, this is not a little, I mean, this story, if you take it literally, has a ton of problems. I mean, let's just begin with the fact that God doesn't seem to know very much. <laughs> uh, not, not what you would expect God to know, right? You would expect God to have more information. This God isn't all-knowing. This God doesn't seem to be all-powerful. This God is not everywhere all at once. This God is hanging out in a garden looking for some naked people. Like, that's what's happening in this story. Wow. And so if we take it literally, like, Adam existed. And because Adam and Eve sinned, all of this gets passed down to us. Well, that, that but what we know from science? And scripture? That, that's not how it worked. The earth is not 6,000 years old. Don't tell Ken Ham. Uh, or maybe do.
0: I'm going to cut it off. <laughs> That's enough of that. Um, we don't need to get into the, the question and answers there because I think we've heard enough in the first sermon that will give us a very good foundation of progressive Christianity. And I think uh, overall, I would say that progressive Christianity so far is not a Christianity at all. Now, My mind could be changed. Your mind could be changed over the next coming weeks as we just listen to a few more of these sermons. And I think it's important. You may ask, why again are you doing this? Why are we listening to sermons on progressive Christianity? It's because this type of thinking leads people into more and more sin. You see our world getting, it just seems to be like in Ohio. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, they now have legalized abortion again. There's uh, they say it's health care. Abortion is health care. When Roe versus Wade was overturned, it was sent the abortion back to the states. And Ohio said, hey, this is what we're going to do. And a bunch of people, 2.2 million people said, yes, abortion is now part of our constitution in the state of Ohio. It's because you have people that would profess to be a Christian. But when you dissect and get into their worldview, they're really progressive Christians that have fashioned a God out of their own Thinking in their own way of life. So uh, that's um, it for episode or sermon one, as far as our crash course of progressive Christianity. I'd love to know what you think if you listen this far. I know that I wanted to turn it off several times when I was listening to it the first time, but I didn't. And uh, I'd love to know what you think. I'd love to know what you think about their stance on some of these major doctrines and uh, what you think overall as far as progressive Christianity. And if you've ever had to engage with one, maybe you live with one, maybe uh, maybe you work with one, maybe you just know someone who would pro- pro- profess to be a progressive Christian. I'd like to know how those interactions go. So uh, I'd love to know your thoughts, what you think about progressive Christianity and uh, all those things. So feel free to leave comments. And uh, until next time, when we do it again, we'll listen to... Uh, This man talked more about penal substitutionary atonement and why it was unnecessary and why. And we'll see, even see if he believes Jesus really died or not. So we'll see what they believe when it comes to the death of Christ on the cross. And uh, again, we'll look at that from some biblical perspectives and uh, we'll go from there. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you are seeking the scriptures to try to combat some of these things. And until next time, God bless.